It is Wednesday, February 10th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Draft Sharks Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me, as always, is Jared Smola. And joining us today for episode two in the What I Got Wrong series is Mike Clay from a little place called ESPN. Mike, thanks very much for joining us today. Yeah, sure, guys. You know, when you invited me to this, I was thinking, you know, I spend the whole year just reading tweets of people praising all my good calls and never get any about negative calls. So it's good to, you know, end the season and reflect on all the bad calls because I haven't thought about them. So thank you, guys. I really wait. Is it the opposite of that? Wait. Yeah. Yeah. I, but yeah. Thanks, guys. Come on, Mike. We all know you as the joyless projections troll who hates everybody's favorite team, hates this all the players. But I, what people might not know, I think you actually relish the end of football season so that you can turn your Twitter feed into 100% NASCAR. Yes, this is absolutely correct. So I, I did that yesterday, actually. We're recording this on uh, Wednesday. Tuesday was the start of the new NASCAR season. So I said goodbye to football on Twitter. Hello to NASCAR. And of course, I won't think about football now until, what, September uh, 9th? Or, no, that's not true at all. But uh, yeah, I enjoy, look, uh, I think you guys get this. Once football becomes less of you being a fan or a hobby and becomes a job, it changes, right? You become more objective. I'm not as hardcore of an Eagles fan as I was growing up. When I would jump on tables and run around, I remember at college watching the Super Bowl against the Patriots, jumping around like an idiot. You know, now I need some other way to, you know, to apply that fandom, right? Um, instead of having to be an objective thinker all the time. And I use that for NASCAR and uh, NHL, too. I follow the Flyers pretty closely. So you have to find those outlets, I think. And, and that's what uh, NASCAR has been to me. But, um, yeah, I'm thinking football 24-7, just like you guys. Just wait till your kids grow up and you can paint your chest for their games instead. And really embarrass people. <laughs> Yes, cannot wait Jared, for that. Jared um, likes to turn Canadian this time of year and pretend that other people care about hockey with him. Hockey and golf are my uh, escapes from, from football for a few there months. You go. We, of course, do have Mike here today to continue our look into some of the biggest rankings misses for 2020 versus actual production. You know, Mike alluded to it. We'll all get called out for things that we get wrong during the year, but it is important to look back at some of the things we got wrong. Sometimes it's just, you know, I didn't see that coming. Some other players might have lessons that we can then take forward into 2021 and beyond, maybe draft a little better next year. We've got players to hit on at every position today. We're going to start, though, with a guy that that's that came up yesterday with J.J. Zacharyson. He's going to come up in pretty much all of our shows this week because he was on everybody's list. Mike, talk to me about what happened in 2020 with Stephon Diggs and his suddenly grown-up quarterback. Yeah, I mean, it, it's crazy. I mean, if you think about uh, prognostication and objectively kind, kind of uh, – evaluating the league, I think most of the time that process will work pretty good, right? You're going to hit more than you miss. But with the Bills offense, I mean, especially doing, I did an exhaustive study on offensive play callers last offseason. The NFL Nation uh, team helped me go back and identify all the play callers for every team going back to 2007. And I evaluated all of that. And you know, what I found was what we kind of expected, nothing new uh, with the Bills offense. Brian Dable's offenses don't score. They're low volume. They're run heavy. And Stephon Diggs was coming from an offense that was the same in Minnesota. You know, they weren't really a, at times they would spike in scoring, but they were very low volume, very, very run heavy. And Stephon Diggs struggled. He was not a good fantasy wide receiver in 2019. So I, I thought it's a similar situation. You have an inaccurate quarterback. They're going to be low volume. They're going to run. They're not going to score. And uh, guys, it was... The complete opposite of that, obviously, right? I mean, uh, it, it, was, it was such a pain to have all of those things kind of seem to align 
uh, and then be so wrong. Uh, obviously, they went pass heavy. They score. They were one of the highest scoring teams in the NFL. Uh, Diggs' target share was massive. He was super productive. Josh Allen was way better than he was his first two seasons in the NFL. Uh, and Diggs obviously flourished. He's a super talented player, but I just thought the situation would limit him. But I guess bet on young and prime talent, right? Uh, I guess that was the message here. They gave up a first-round pick to get him, and it paid off in a big way. So definitely too low on him. There's no question I swung and missed on that one. The fact that Buffalo gave up a first-round pick for Diggs I think is – the only thing you could point to and be like, okay, this is why we should have thought Buffalo was going to pass more. And even then, like I would have said, okay, they might be league average as far as pass rate, not, you know, a top three team in pass rates. I don't know. I mean, we can try to find takeaways from this, but I think, you know, it's, it's football, goofy stuff happens, stuff that we can't project. If anything, I think, as you said, Mike, it's just, we, we probably should have been betting on a talent like Diggs considering he was going in, you know, the fifth or sixth round of fantasy drafts. Yeah, I think that's a big takeaway here is just the, the the what if kind of bringing it in, factoring it in more, saying, I know I like Stefan Diggs. They obviously really like him. Let's take sh- some shots on him here just in case something crazy happens. I don't think any of us saw Josh Allen improving the way he did. 45 total touchdowns for him, plus a touchdown reception, with put, which put him one ahead of Devin Singletary in that category last year. As surprising as Josh Allen's step forward was in terms of fantasy production, Aaron Rodgers might have even been more surprising for 2020 uh, coming off two of his weakest seasons ever in touchdown rate completion rate, really a five year stretch of being down in yards per pass attempt. He threw eight more touchdowns than in any previous season, set a personal high in completion rate, big rebound in yards per attempt. And Mike, he did all that in a year where we were making fun of the Packers for not mm-hmm. adding anything at wide receiver. Tell me about what happened with Aaron Rodgers in 2020 fantasy. Again, hashtag good at football, right? I mean, it's really that simple. I, I don't, I guess, I, I don't, I don't have another answer, guys. They didn't. It's not like their offensive line got better. It's not like their weapons got better. To your point, they didn't really add much in terms of personnel for him. You know, some people will say he was motivated by the draft pick of Jordan Love. Eh, I mean, the, the same. You know, same people say Carson Wentz struggled because they drafted a quarterback. You know, does that did that really matter? But how do you get, how do you skyrocket like that in one year? Is it just a guy that said, you know, he heard the doubters and said, I'm just going to, you know, I've been on cruise control for a few years. I'm going to, I'm going to turn it back around now. Maybe, uh, but I don't, I don't have a great answer for this, but uh, you know, I guess, I guess the answer is he's just really, really good at football and just put it all together. The team as a whole pretty much stayed healthy. And uh, I mean, it was his first top five fantasy season since, 2016 he's finished number one a lot in it throughout his career but you know it just kind of all came together the passing touchdowns were there and and he played terrific the best football he's played in years and kind of to touch back on Josh Allen too people will say well you were wrong about him right he was always good not no I you know Allen really wasn't good coming into the league as a passer he got a lot better and Aaron Rodgers hasn't been that good the past few years he was average and he played a lot better this year both things can be true right you know so uh, that was the situation, I think, with Rodgers. He just stepped up his game, played better football, and it was hard to see coming unless you just said, I'm going to take a flyer on this guy because of what he did in the past. I think he could bounce back. If you did that, obviously it paid off. I wonder if the the takeaway here is more about ADP than it is about Aaron Rodgers specifically, where maybe he was just our Matt Ryan this past year in that you know every year Matt Ryan, if he's going 7th or 8th in ADP, then you pass on him. And if he's going 14th in ADP, then you draft him because he can finish anywhere in that range. And it's really about how lucky he gets in touchdown rates. So 
Maybe it's just that a quarterback overall and, and specifically for guys that we know are talented along the lines of Aaron Rodgers. You know, if he's falling down, you say, well, I don't love him this year, but if I can get Aaron Rodgers as the 13th quarterback, then I'm going to take him because you never know when he's going to have that TD rate spike. Yeah, so I'm looking at my my rankings for 2021 with 2020 ADP here, and you know you have Mahomes up there, Josh Allen, Kyler Murray, Watson, and Rodgers just stand out uh, like a sore thumb at, in the 11th round. You know, late MFL 10 drafts, he was going in the 11th round. So uh, there's no question. Maybe we should have identified that and said the guy's too good to be going that late and take a flyer on him. Some people did that, and obviously it worked out. I think you know, first of all, the touchdown rate 9.1 percent career. He's always been a higher touchdown rate guy, but you know that that's something that you can't bet on. I'll, you know, I, I know we'll we're going to project it to decline in in twenty twenty one. The other thing too is I I do think these you know future Hall of Fame type quarterbacks they they do sort the the conventional rules kind of don't apply to them. And we see it with Tom Brady, what he's doing in his age, sort of the same thing with, with Aaron Rodgers. You know, we don't see thirty seven year old quarterbacks you know kind of ha- have career seasons very often, but. When it's a guy of Rogers' talent level, I think you know we, we might want to consider it more of a possibility than than um, otherwise. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, betting on a career year is never going to be a good idea, but it's about watching that value, watching where you're taking a shot. Kind of like with Stefan Diggs, even if you can't say, oh, he's going to way exceed this draft position, you say, well, this is a guy who we know is physically capable of exceeding this position. So let's get some shares just in case something crazy happens with him. Let's move on to running back now. And Kenyon Drake was a player that you listed, Mike, and he was actually a guy that we debated quite a bit behind the scenes at Draft Sharks last year and setting up our preseason rankings. So where were you on Drake heading into 2020 and how did that turn out for you? I was high on Drake. I liked him at the one-two turn. Uh, it may be uncomfortable all offseason. You know, I thought that there was really by, you know, as you get into August, I thought there was like a core 14 at running back that I felt comfortable with. If I could get two of those guys uh, in the first two rounds, I felt pretty good. Occasionally, maybe late in the second round of maybe a 10-teamer, occasionally a 12-teamer, you could grab one of those guys. It didn't work out for a lot of them, obviously. It was a rough year at that position, but I thought Drake was in that conversation. And the debate was, like, this is a veteran guy that hasn't really done it before for a full season, but he got the transition tag. In the second half, you know, his, his time with Arizona, the season they traded for him, he was outstanding. The target share was so high. The carries were solid. The offense, we thought, would take a leap, which it did, by the way. You know, I was in on Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins. The Hopkins one does, doesn't sound bold, but at his ADP, people were really negative on him. There was a lot of very smart people that thought he would kind of crash back to earth. So I was like, I was in on Murray. I was in on Hopkins. And I was in on Drake as part of that, right? I thought the whole offense would would be lifted and, and be high scoring. But on the other hand, you're you, again, he just... He hadn't done it before, and you thought, is he just going to get injured, or is he going to be limited? Is he going to struggle? Uh, and he did struggle for a while. Like, the volume was there. The carry volume was there, but the targets weren't. And that was the, the shocker, right? Like, where did the targets go? It didn't make sense. It was a big change from the previous season. And that's where I struggle with right or wrong, at least in the first half of the season. Like, should we have seen the target dip coming? I don't think so, right? I, I feel like the process was pretty much fine in that department. I don't know. I can't find uh, a category that tells me, we should have saw it coming. Like we should have seen this dip coming based on a Kingsbury offense or Drake's pass or Chase Edmonds. I didn't see that, but here's the second layer guys. And, and you guys could kind of, you know, opine on this a little bit, but what were we wrong? Because in the second half, he was really good, right? He, uh, since he came back from injury or after he came back from injury in week 10, he was the number 10 scoring fantasy running back. Uh, he was, he ended up RB 14, 
for the season despite missing that time. Sixth in carries and rushing touchdowns. Second in carries inside the five. It was just the targets that were lacking. But otherwise, I mean, he delivered above expectations on the ground. He couldn't score to save his life pre-injury, right? I mean, that, that was sort of the yeah. knock. And Kyler Murray was stealing all those short rushing touchdowns. And I think after he came back, he was scoring in bunches. So that was a big part of it. Two other things I think. There were some rumblings in August that like Chase Edmonds was going to play a bigger role. I never saw it as like anything concrete enough to change projections. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing, though, Drake had that August foot or ankle injury. He was in a walking boot for multiple weeks. I think that played a bigger part in his, you know, semi-disappointing season, especially from a, an efficiency standpoint. I think he was at 4.0 yards per carry, which was a, a career low for him. Um, so I don't know, maybe my lesson, and I feel like I say this every time around this year, and I, I don't stick to it, but man, guys that get hurt in August, that's tough when you're heading into a season already at less than 100%. So I think, I think you know, th- those, those guys who, you know, even if they're relatively supposedly minor injuries, I think we should, you know, maybe back off them a bit in our, you know, draft rankings. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, keep in mind, he finished third in OTD, which for those not familiar is a stat that looks at looks at expected touchdowns based on their usage. He was at 13.4. Only Cam Newton and Dalvin Cook were ahead of him. The the opportunity for him to score was tremendous. I mean, he was set, he ended up actually second in the NFL and carries inside the five. Only Dalvin Cook had more. So, I mean, I guess we got the opportunity right uh, or we were too low on the opportunity. Really, we just in a PPR league, you needed more targets and we did not get those. Mm-hmm. That was certainly a surprising component of his season. Um, in preparing for this show, Mike, you also told me that you had DK Metcalf and Will Fuller a little too low at ranking times. Did you feel um, like you misread the situation for either guy or what, what was your takeaway for those two receivers? Yeah, they just weren't guys for me who I had, you know, stars by on my cheat sheet. Right. And they, I should have. I, I did like the last couple weeks of the season, the off season. I got to that point like in late August where it was starting to get into draft season. And I was kind of kicking myself for not pushing these guys more. And really Deontay Johnson, I think fits that fits that mix as well. And I know that sounds like outcome bias. Like I'm just saying that now, but they were three guys late in the off season. I was thinking a lot about, and I was like, man, should I have been higher on them? And I I was picking apart my projections and I was like, you know, Metcalf, I, I, you know, I look at what he did the year before and I thought maybe he was overrated because his end zone targets, he was easily the end zone target leader in the NFL as a rookie. It wasn't even close. And I thought maybe people were too on that. And and if it's a low volume offense, maybe the volume wouldn't be there for him and he would be a bit limited. And at times he actually was, especially in the second half of the season. But overall, obviously, uh, we sh- I should have been higher on him. Will Fuller, I, I don't know what to say there. I mean, just super talented. I mean, I, I wasn't really anti him because of injury right so I, sh- I didn't, don't really have an excuse right he's just super talented was in a good situation with Hopkins and it's not like I didn't like him but I should have been higher on him and and uh, if you drafted him obviously it stunk down the stretch there when he got lost for the season due to suspension but he was on he was on his way uh, to a major breakout season and uh, you know Johnson as well I mean it was hard to project s- such a high target share especially with Juju Smith-Schuster and Washington and Eric Ebron coming in and, and everybody involved there so you know, again, just some guys that had talent were in good situations. I wish I was a, a few spots higher on. Metcalf, I was definitely not in on at his price, especially because yeah. Tyler Lockett was going around later or so in ADP. And, and Tyler Lockett was, to me, the, I guess, at least the floor favorite between those two. And with plenty of ceiling, it wasn't like you had to trade in ceiling to get the floor for Tyler Lockett. I think what I 
I don't know, I guess underrated there was kind of like the underrating with Stefan Diggs is what if they let Russ cook a little bit more, which they did in the first half, didn't do in the second half. So I, I don't think it ended up being too bad to be out on these guys. But I said it in our show with JJ, and I think that trying to factor in the what if a little bit more is important because mm-hmm. we're talking about a sport that's all small samples. We know we're going to get some things wrong. So I think it's for me personally, I need to to try a little bit harder to think of what might I be able to see now that could be wrong that I could kind of, I don't know, hedge on it a little bit at draft time. I, I agree. I mean, it, it's a you have to walk the line, though, right? I mean, if you just draft all upside, you're going to have some horrible years. I mean, it's just you definitely have to consider range of outcomes. And people often ask me, what's the difference between my projections and rankings? And usually they align pretty well. Uh, but that upside versus floor is factored in, right? Especially once you fill out, you know, your first few rounds and you get that core together of your lineup. Uh, after that, you start swinging for the fences a little bit and thinking about range of outcomes and, and high upside. And, that, you know, that's why you might take a guy that has a, a huge ceiling, like a Justin Jefferson late in your draft over, you know, a more solid player who could just kind of get you through the week. So it's uh, you have to walk the line, though, right? You just can't. It, there's so much bias involved in making decisions with fantasy football. You get caught up in so many different things, like one big highlight play. I like Bryce Butler for his whole career because uh, I remember he made an amazing touchdown catch for the Raiders in the preseason as a rookie. <laughs> and I became obsessed with Bryce Butler for some reason. So, you know, you just have to be uh, a s- smart with it. Consider all variables, not just upside, not just floor, but definitely, you know, most likely outcome. You know, I think that's a, a really important feature to consider when you're, again, especially in the early rounds of drafts. I'm obviously a big fan of doing projections. I think if you're not doing projections, you're, you're doing it wrong. I mean, the one shortcoming in projections, though, is they, they don't capture like the outlier, the ultimate upside. And really, you know, that's what fantasy comes down to is drafting like those two or three players every year that just smash ADP easily lead their position in fantasy points. So I think as you alluded to, Mike, it is important to, you know, have your projections, but then maybe make adjustments when you're actually ranking and actually drafting. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I think a lot of that damage can be done. That game-breaking player identification can be done after the first few rounds, right? I don't think you have to right. uh, you have to go nuts in the first couple of rounds um, to do that. You know, if you find a Justin Jefferson, take T. Higgins. I mean, I, we all love taking rookie wide receivers in the double-digit rounds this year. And if you just hit on the right guys, obviously it paid off well. If you picked up James Robinson off waivers, uh, you know, Antonio Gibson, if you identified him as a talent within a good situation, you know, th- those guys didn't cost you, you know, passing up on a, on a, you know, a solid player like a Julio Jones or something who seems like a bad example, but he's always good, right? Uh, this year was a, a, you know, a down year for him, but, you know, it's easy to say, you know what, Julio's getting a little older. I'm going to take the next big thing and, and grab AJ Brown or something. And uh, I think most of the time, if you do that in the first few rounds, it's going to hurt you more. You're going to lose a lot. Uh, occasionally it'll hit and you'll have a great season, but uh, if you just want to put together a good season get to the playoffs and have a shot, uh, I don't think you need to make those high ceiling moves in the first couple of rounds. There's a time and a place for that throughout your draft. And, you know, I hate to say that, say this, I don't want to sit here and pat myself on the back. I think I'm, I'm pretty decent at fantasy, right? Like uh, you guys are too. We, we do a good job consistently over a year to year basis. We're in a lot of leagues and, and we we compete, we're competitive, we make the playoffs. And I think that's a viable strategy. If I was constantly missing the playoffs and struggling, I think, you know, maybe I do have to swing for the fences more often. I don't think that's the case uh, in the first few rounds of drafts. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Justin Jefferson because to me, he's the biggest, he's a bigger kick myself player than Stefan Diggs or DK Metcalf. Because even if 
his draft position didn't line up with my projection for him, you know, we all knew that there was a wide yeah. range of possible outcomes and I'm not gambling that much by taking him in round nine or round 10, whereas it's a much bigger gamble to take DK Metcalf over say Adam Thielen in round five. If DK Metcalf doesn't hit and Adam Thielen does, I'm going to feel stupid there. But I, I, I think that it's going to be important to, I don't know, look for more of those range of outcome guys later in the draft in Later single-digit rounds, certainly in the double-digit rounds, um, those are definitely the guys that can win leagues. T.Y. Hilton is next on the wide receiver list. I like T.Y. Hilton at cost heading into 2020 drafts. Admittedly, though, once I started drafting more, I can't say I was actually going after him <laughs> as much as I thought I was going to, and I, I stopped talking about him both you know, behind the scenes as we were working on our rankings and certainly on the podcast. Where were you, Mike, on T.Y. Hilton heading into last season? I was thinking T.Y. Hilton would be – Philip Rivers, Keenan Allen. That's what I was thinking. Now, maybe not, you know, a, a borderline top five fantasy receiver, but again, at cost, he was cheap, right? You get him super cheap in drafts. I thought that if he utilized him that way and he had a 25% target share and he was using the short area and he was a safety blanket, he could have a huge season. And uh, he was, quote unquote, only 30, right? It's not like he was 33 or something or something that you thought would really limit him. And it did not work out early in the season. I mean, you know, I, I just pulled up this stat that I tweeted in the middle of December. His first 10 games, he had 62 fantasy points. And then if you picked him up off waivers or found a way to get him on your team, it paid off his next two and a half games, not even full games, two and a half games, 65 fantasy points. He just went nuts for the most part the rest of the season. So again, it's one, it's kind of like Kenyon Drake, right? Where it's hard to identify the miss there, right? I mean, he was playing a lot early in the season, missed a little bit of time, but he was out there. The targets just weren't there. They didn't really have other go-to weapons. It was just really the Colts offense was stumbling there for a while. It took a while to get going. Maybe that's what we should have seen. They'll have some growing pains early on and then get going in the second half. If that's the way you attack this offense, it obviously paid off in a big way for you. Yeah, I wasn't on Hilton so much, but I, I was on AJ Green. And I, I yeah. think they're pretty similar guys. They were going in you know similar range of drafts. Older guys who have had injury issues, but proven producers and again they were cheap enough like I, I, if you drafted T.Y. Hilton if you drafted A.J. Green that it didn't kill you they were cheap enough where you could get away with it so I, I'm I'm fine with those types of misses yeah I show Hilton round six uh late you know uh, again this is very very close to the start of the season ended up around round six which I remember getting him cheaper than that um I'm, I'm uh trying to check my draft oh no I have around six so I guess that's right I mean I my targets there in my big board article were T.Y. Hilton or Darren Waller so hopefully I took Waller more than I or hopefully people took Waller more than they than they took T.Y. Hilton definitely like Waller for sure in that range so I think I probably leaned more that direction but that's where you could get Tyler Boyd that's also at times where A.J. Green was going that's where Will Fuller was going that's where Rojo was going so those were kind of those were all the guys I was kind of keeping an eye on them and as fantasy goes, you know, some of them worked out well, some of them did not at all. Do you think that a takeaway on Hilton is maybe either realizing heading in that he hasn't been that kind of target hog previously, and so maybe we shouldn't project too much of a, a target share ceiling for him, or maybe watch out for speed receivers who are aging and who might be declining? Well, here's my analysis of him. I'll re read it word for word. He had never finished a season in which he played at least 14 games worse than 27th in fantasy points, and he was 19th in 2019 during his 10 active weeks. And then you're going from Jacoby Brissett to Phillip Rivers on top of that. So that was my logic in round six. I thought, you know, he's going to cruise to a top 20 season. You know, worst case, he's finished his 21st or 22nd, and he was 
well, like 70th in the, in the first three months of the season. I mean, uh, I didn't see that coming. Uh, that's a, that's a fair question for sure. But you know, he had been consistent, right? It wasn't like you were super reliant on just big plays occasionally. And he was all over the place. He was delivering year after year after year. And if, for whatever reason, it didn't carry over to the first couple months of the Philip Rivers era. Yeah. I mean, I didn't foresee the crash coming either. I certainly liked him there. And I thought that he was a fairly high floor. I mean, I guess really the only thing that we couldn't have projected was him not getting the targets. Cause I, yeah, I didn't yeah. see where the targets were really going to go if he wasn't getting, you know, more than he did, but I, the Indy just spread it around, I guess. Yeah. And they came eventually, right? Like <laughs> they ended up coming. Like, where was that early in the yeah. season? Had they just utilized that uh, scheme earlier in the season or that game plan, you know, he, he may have been a, a hit. We might be talking about him as a major hit for the season. So uh, that was, that was kind of surprising, but uh, it is what it is. That was a, that was a tricky one for sure. It's hard to kind of reconcile it considering that he did deliver on it later in the season. The fantasy points started to come when he, when he faced the Texans. twice. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah. I haven't actually looked at the schedule split. Maybe there's a, maybe there's something there, but uh, yeah, he, he had a suit. I remember it was a super easy stretch. It was like Texans twice. Yeah. The lions were in there. There was like a four or five game stretch where it was a super soft schedule. Hard schedules are tough for guys like Hilton and Keenan Allen. You're not as worried about them because they move around so much, right? They're in the slot. Mm-hmm. They're they're just all over the place. Tyreek Hill, Keenan Allen, uh, T.Y. Hilton. There's there's a handful of guys like that. You just you're not too worried about it because they're not like on the perimeter 82 percent of the time. Like DK Metcalf, you can identify a tough shadow situation. You know he's going to be one on one man a lot against a certain player. There's certain players like that. Hilton's not one of those. So it's not like that was a, a red flag most weeks. And of course, Hilton's always killed the Texans. So we can queue up the Deshaun Watson for T.Y. Hilton trade for Houston this offseason. We're going to close out here with a couple of tight ends who came at different value points in 2020 drafts, but each disappointed drafters quite strongly from where they did go. Mike, talk to me about the 2020 experience with Tyler Higby and Chris Herndon. Yeah, you know what? I remember debating with people on Twitter about uh, Higby versus Everett. And uh, some people had the opinion that you don't bother taking Higby uh, at his ADP. It was just too early in round eight. You wait later and take a shot on Everett. And by season's end, the answer was we were all wrong, right? Just don't take any of them was the, the right advice at their ADP. I just had a hard time believing that Sean McVay would make that adjustment in this in the final what five four to six weeks of 2019 get that much out of Tyler Higby like elite target share for a tight end elite production and then the next year would roll around and he would be like we're gonna lock him back up right we unlock this part of our offense we're gonna put it back away that's exactly what they did you know they they got better as an offense they were scoring this year at, at a much higher rate uh, not what they were earlier in the McVay era there, but better. And Higby pretty much disappeared. I mean, it looked good when he had that game against the Eagles. Of course, Matt, you remember that closely uh, when he had that, what was it, three touchdowns, four yeah. touchdowns? Yeah, so it looked good at that point. But from there on, the targets just were not there. So that was a miss. Uh, I guess the message there is try not to get caught up in small samples. Um, I did in that one. You know, I I, I uh, pride myself on not getting caught up in recency bias, but I thought that would stay the same. Now, I didn't think his target share would be that high, that it would come down, but I thought it would be in a place where he could be a top 10 fantasy tight end. That did not happen. Uh, and then Chris Herndon, it was betting on talent. You know, if you look at the list of tight end rookie yard per target leaders over the past decade or so, it is just a who's who of superstars at tight end. It's name a superstar tight end and fantasy. They're on that list. And Chris Herndon, is also on that list. Noah Fant was on the list too. He obviously worked out for the most part uh, in a bad situation there in that Denver offense still was tight at eight. Herndon just wasn't good, struggled, targets weren't there. Adam Gase offense, 
And late in the season, he started to come around. He actually did start to evolve. So maybe there's some post-hype appeal there for Herndon. I'm not sure that he's not good. Uh, maybe it just it took him a while to get back after missing a full season uh, pretty much in 2019. And maybe with the new scheme now, uh, he can kind of get on track. So I think maybe a dynasty buy low there for Chris Herndon, but no more than a very late flyer in 21, uh, 2021 redraft leagues. I agree with that. I think on, on Chris Herndon, you bet against Adam Gase players is yeah. the way to go. That's good advice. Yeah. I mean, that was my argument against Le'Veon Bell at his seemingly fine value versus opportunity in, in drafts yeah. last year too. Fortunately, as of right now, we don't have to worry about Adam Gase for 2021 effects. You know, I think maybe we can apply that to other situations where we look at a, a running back or a wide receiver or whoever who seems like he's in for good opportunity, but we really don't like his situation, you know, you always weigh that versus where you buy him. And I think Chris Herndon was well outside the, the top 12 tight end. So even if you had drafted him as like the 16th tight end and he busted completely, that's not ending your season. Uh, if you think that that ended your season, your team was much worse than you thought it was. <laughs> in with. So I, you know, you don't worry too much about taking a shot on somebody like that, but there's always this feeling of like, there are some guys in the rankings and Mike, I'll ask you how much this comes into play for you, because I know, you know, you've always been very projection driven and more analytical than, than me even. Are there guys come draft time after you do all this work on your projections that even if their draft position lines up well with where you project them, you just get left feeling uneasy and you don't wind up drafting them where it seems like it should make sense? Yeah, it's a really good question. I'm, I'm trying to think of examples. I think that uh, th I, that's absolutely the case. When I'm done and, and everything's set up and I compare the my rankings to projections, there's guys that come up and they're the top guy on the board, or rankings versus ADP, excuse me, and I just don't feel great about it. You know, It's just a matter of do I stick with my guns, follow the process, follow the rankings, or do I lean a few spots down and go after a little bit upside? Sometimes it'll depend on recent reports or if I need a little upside in my lineup or where I am in the draft. And uh, sometimes, guys, it's how I'm feeling that day. You know, <laughs> I'm just, you know, maybe you know how it is. Every day a player's value seems to change, whether it's in our brain or a report we read or whatever it is. Sometimes I just feel better about guys than others. But um, for the most part, I follow my board. I'm comfortable with it. We do get caught up sometimes with the next shiny object and it leaves other guys underrated. And I think a great example of that is Aaron Jones. And he is an excellent example of a guy. I mentioned those top 14 running backs last year who people were kind of down on, right? They thought A.J. Dillon and that offense, will, you know, they didn't really add weapons. They're not going to be much better. And Jamal Williams is there. People were kind of sliding him down. He ended up in round two for a guy that was an elite fantasy tight end the year before, or fantasy running back the year before. And I started to get a little anxious with him. You know, do I want to take him uh, that one-two turn? Because I, I was, I liked him, but I wasn't super aggressive about it. And I was starting to kind of feel what people were saying uh, about him. And I wish I was a little bit more aggressive in getting him on my team, but he's just one of them guys, again, that if you just said he's really good, he's still a lead back in this Packers offense, I'm just going to grab him uh, at the value at that one-two turn. It obviously paid off in a big way. But, again, everybody's thinking Josh Jacobs and Nick Chubb and uh, here comes Austin Eckler back and let's get Miles Sanders and Clyde edwards Elair went before him in most drafts. So there is a time and a place to take the, the safer guy when you know there's so much volume, there's so many other variables involved that, that could pay off in a big way. Uh, and I think the early rounds are, like I said before, are the place to do that. And Aaron Jones is a good example. I think Aaron Jones, too, is a good example of trying to stay flexible in draft season because it, things can change. If you yeah. look at early best balls last year, he was a first round pick mm -hmm. uh, coming off that double digit touchdown year. And, and in the first round, I was like, no, thanks on Aaron Jones. He's going to be overrated this year. But 
as we got further into it, he started slipping. As you mentioned, yeah. in round two, you could get a mid round three or late mid round two, late round two. At that point, I think he certainly made sense. And it's, it's important to not get so dug in on a player. I think that you just, you know, say, forget about him or I'm chasing him as no matter how high he goes and be sure that you're able to adjust when those prices change. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, guys definitely changed, and that's what I'm saying. Day to day, you see fluctuations. And if a, I, like I, if a guy is falling in a draft, you don't want me to pick, you know, and you're identifying him, you don't want me to be ahead of you in the draft because I'm going to grab that value player, right? I'm not just going to go after, I'm not going to, uh, he's falling, I'm going to go get the next guy. I'm going to take that guy that's plummeting in drafts. And I think you guys probably know that from doing like the going deep at drafts and stuff. Uh, I know JJ, who he already had on the show, is the same way, right? I know if he's picking ahead of me and a value is falling and this guy's falling, and I'm like, come on, get to me. We all do it. We all pray. Please make it three more picks. I want this guy. Come on, make it. He sticks out like a sore thumb. This guy should not still be on the board. You know, there's cert certain people that have that kind of men the mentality. They're going to grab that value and not not force another position or reach for a high ceiling guy. And that's the way I am. So if a guy's falling in value, like an Aaron Jones, so I ended up with late in the on a few teams from late in you know August when I did those drafts because he was falling. Uh, I'm with you 100%. That's a very good way to draft. And getting that value can go a long way toward getting you over the top and into the playoffs. Yeah, that's sort of the wisdom of the crowds thing, right? Like if, you know, if this huge group of fantasy drafters thinks Aaron Jones should be running back 12 and I can get him here at running back 16, it's probably a good pick. The other thing I wanted to mention about projections too, I think – you know, Mike and Matt obviously know this because they do them. If you don't do projections, I think it's you'd be surprised how close these guys come out. Like, oh, yeah. You know, running back 10 and running back 15 are probably separated by like six or seven fantasy points. And that's that's one projected touchdown. So if you're reaching, you know, five or six spots down the rank, it's, you know, it, it's really not a reach because these guys are all so close. And by the way, running back easy compared to wide receiver. I mean, especially yeah. now with the, these recent draft classes and teams utilizing so much receivers. Ten years ago, wide receiver was much easier. It is super hard now. Everyone is so close. You could have a guy that's like 17th versus 35th, and it's like seven points. And you're like, what? You know, like there's a huge gap. But, I mean, you can use that to your advantage to some extent and find value. And I think it pushes me more towards waiting a little bit at wide receiver, again, even more so in 2021, and just taking shots on running backs and hope they pan out. So if you take them shots on, on running backs, you still get really good talent at wide receiver. And if you hit on the running backs, you're going to have a, an outstanding football team and and again that's always been my battle with the zero running back kind of weighing it and that's also but guys why you don't have to be so rigid with the draft strategy take it as it falls right if there's a superstar wide receiver falling like a Tyree Hill or an Adams and the running backs are going you can take that guy it's okay you're going to have some options throughout your draft don't force one particular strategy you're going to end up losing to people who didn't do that who didn't force you you have 11 league mates in most leagues those guys are going to at least a few of them are going to maximize their drafts, have a good draft. If you start forcing things and reaching for guys that aren't aren't the savviest pick, you're going to end up you're going to end up with a bad team by the end of the draft. Before we get too far away from the the tight ends with Tyler Higby, I just wanted to say, you know, hindsight it's clearly overrating the small sample of the end of last year versus his previous three and a half seasons. But this whole sport is small sample, so I want to make sure that I don't overreact to that in that I'm ignoring all similarly small samples and then missing out on somebody who is trending up. Like what if Tyler Higby did get the same target share and this to, to begin the season and he did end up hitting and, you know, whereas early in draft season, he was going sixth or seventh, he was available 11th or 12th. Again, it's, it's along the same lines of, of finding value where as long as somebody's not 
grossly overrated versus what you need to happen for him. I guess let's make sure that we don't overreact in the other way just because it didn't work out this year for a certain guy. Yep. I'm, I agree with you 100%. You always have to think about the other side and think about the process. You know, you get too caught up with outcomes, you're going to get burnt way more than you're going to hit for sure. So, uh, yeah, I think in general, uh, we just talked through a lot of misses. Um, I think for the most part, if you follow the process that we apply to those guys, you're going to do pretty well. You know, you're going to, most of the time they're going to be right, but we're always learning too. I'm always tweaking my model. I'm doing that now. It's that part of the year to work on that kind of thing. So there's always adjustments, always room for improvements. If I get 1% better every year, I'm happy with that. So uh, just something to keep in mind. Don't get, don't see one example of something going way different than you expected and just change your whole philosophy over something like that. Before we go, Mike, I want to say, honestly, watching you rise through the fantasy landscape has been truly awesome through the years. I can remember interacting with you often on Twitter when you were starting out at Fantasy DC. I was at a previous stop, you know, sometimes agreeing, sometimes battling. But, you know, watching you from there, then go launch the PFF fantasy product, landing at the worldwide leader now, I think, honestly, I think you and also your colleague, Matthew Berry, are, are prime examples in this fantasy space of what someone can achieve if they're pursuing their passion and putting in the work to get there. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I appreciate that first and foremost. But uh, yeah, I remember you as one of the first people I, I worked with, interacted with, did mock drafts with, did shows with. Uh, I'm sure we did some art. I think we did some articles together actually at DC yep. or, or BFF, like crossover roundtable sort of articles and stuff. So uh, you guys are two of the smartest minds in the business. It's always been, I'm glad I, I've known you guys for so long and we've been able to interact. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the, the industry continues to evolve and change and, you know, a lot of, uh, names we know at the the top of the totem pole have kind of kind of left high end jobs. You think about like Evan Silva leaving what used to be Roto World. Actually, they today they announced <laughs> they they're rebranding, which is crazy. I'm never gonna get used to that. But a lot of changes. Jeff Ratcliffe, of course, uh, going away from PFF, and if you see, Brad Evans away from Yahoo. It's been a a transition. Um, but you guys have been in your home a long time, just doing great work. Uh, Draft Sharks, obviously a, a terrific, terrific site. And also one more note uh, on a sad side, Chris Wesling, man, rest in peace. Uh, that, that was really unfortunate. He actually gave me my first paid job in the industry, believe it or not. So on this topic, it certainly applies at Roto World. Just a great guy. He will be missed in a big way. So um, yeah, hate to, hate to wrap up on kind of a sad note, but definitely worth mentioning Chris because he's been such a, an inspiration, I think, for all of us. Yeah, I mean, even those of us who didn't work directly with him, he certainly yeah. crossed paths with him, touched touched lives around the the industry. So for sure, worth tributing. Absolutely, and one of the the uh, early guys at Roto World too. So how about mm-hmm. that for uh, for timing? So I remember arguing. Remember, guys, remember Larod Stevens Howling? Oh yeah, I remember me me and I had a, a long debate on uh, AIM. Uh, AIM. We used to interact when I was writing there, and just. He was he thought I was too high in his rest of season value. And it was like week 13. It was like only a few weeks left. And he was a starter for Arizona. And we had this like heated debate about it. That's one of my memories of arguing with uh, with Chris. And, uh, you know, but uh, he's just a, you know, a great smart dude. And when he said something, some if he says something that conflicts with your opinion, it's always one of the things where you're like, man, I need to I need to stop and think about this again. And there's people like that. Uh, we know, you know, you guys and, you know, Sigmund Bloom and Evan Silva, there's always that group of guys, JJ, uh, who if they're on the other side of the fence on something that I have a strong opinion, I'm like, I need to, I need to go back and look at my projections a little bit and see what I'm, <laughs> see what I'm missing here on this guy. 
Yeah, that's definitely the best thing about crossing swords with all you guys is, you, you know, there are some people who tell you you're stupid and you're like, whatever, you're stupid. Yeah. And then there are other people who say, no, I disagree with that. I like this guy better. And it's like, well, wait a second. Do I actually like this guy as much as I think I do? Am I avoiding this guy uh, for the right reason? So, yeah, I have always appreciated the challenge from you, even when it doesn't seem like I appreciate it. And it seems like I'm getting there. I ultimately appreciate it. Um, yeah, all, all respect here, guys. I love you guys. You're uh, two of the best in the business. So uh, it's always great to and I'm glad we have a league that where we can we compete into the going deep league. One of my favorites of the year. I know you guys uh, are, are always really competitive in that. So uh, that's that's always fun. Well, thanks very much, Mike. And thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Always fun. Mike Clay from ESPN. You know where to find him, really. At this point, it's harder to avoid Clay than it is to find him. So he does hate your team. Keep that in mind before you interact with him. You can, of course, also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShoutDS. It's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Mike Clay, Jared Smola, and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm at Shout saying thanks so much for swimming with us.